Joe Caldwell's been in Memphis about a year. Uh, he is the new president of the Memphis College of Urban Theological Studies. And I say college because for all these years, it's been a ministry here that's done great work, but it's been called Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies. And we just got approval to become the Memphis College of Urban Theological Studies. And MCUTS is a ministry that helps uh, urban pastors expand their knowledge and abilities through theological education, and it helps enormously in bringing peace and knowledge and the spirit to uh, congregations throughout this city. Joe's a new leader. He's been with us about a year. He's been doing great work, uh, and I hope he'll have a great message for us today. He comes to Memphis after a few years in North Carolina with Gardner-Webb University, uh, and then prior to that, he spent a whole lot of his career in the Bay Area of California uh, with the, I can't remember, it's not the Southern Baptist Convention, but the Baptist Convention or Association in that area. So hopefully he'll tell us a little bit about that. Um, but you spent some time in the military too as an Army chaplain. So anyway, we're really thrilled to have Joe here and uh, looking forward to it. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Uh, let me say off the bat what an honor it is to be asked to speak this morning. Um, and I've got to admit that a 6.30 a.m. Bible study kind of blows every stereotype I have of Presbyterians. That, that, that just doesn't fit my preconceived notions. But uh, I, I'm excited uh, to share with you. Um, and I am going to spend the major portion of our time doing what we came here to do, which is dig into the Word, but I wanted to take a, a few moments to kind of share with you briefly some of the changes that are going on at MCUTS and to ask for prayer on a couple of things. Um, MCUTS is, to me, an incredible organization. Uh, I just spent a good deal of time yesterday going through a, a series of comments that our graduates made on the way out. Uh, and one of our graduates said this of NCUTS, uh, we learn to read the Word, we learn to hear the Word, but more importantly, MCUTS teaches us to take the Word off the page and put shoes on it and to live a life of discipleship in the 21st century. Uh, MCUTS, from its founding, has been about how we take theological education into the heart of the inner city with all of its struggles of poverty and dysfunction and, and other issues and provide an education for pastors and, and church members in those local contexts so that the church can have the ability to transform the communities that it's embedded in. Um, we, we're on a, a great path, uh, which uh, may seem different from what we've done in the past. MCUTS is currently seeking independent accreditation. We've always worked with a series of partners. Our board just recently determined that uh, we needed the ability to uh, control and shape the curriculum and the things that we're teaching. We're also uh, working uh, very hard uh, 
to get from here to there. It's about a three-year process, and uh, that process at the end of it uh, will make us completely sustainable. Currently, our partnerships require that we pay out a good deal of money in fees and other things. At the point we achieve accreditation, uh, we won't have those fees, and we'll be fully sustainable, but we've got to get through the next three years. So we covet your prayers uh, and thoughts as we look for partnerships that get us from, from here to there. Uh, at the end of that process, we will be able to then shape uh, the curriculum and everything that we teach to, to fit what we're trying to do here in Memphis. Um, right now, uh, we have a great partner in Lancaster Bible College. Uh, they are very gracious to us, uh, but they are in the heart of Amish country, which is a little different from Memphis. Uh, they tend to teach things a little differently than we do, and uh, this will give us an opportunity to kind of shape that. So, so this name change is part of that move, and, and we're really excited about the future uh, that God has for MCUTS, and we're extremely blessed to have partners like Second Presbyterian Church. Uh, this church has been there from the founding of MCUTS. Uh, Dr. Wilson was a, an incredible supporter of our work and continues to be. And I want to personally thank this group for uh, the scholarship that you gave to in his honor and his name. Uh, that's going to allow us to help uh, young pastors who, who haven't had the opportunity to get a theological education to do so and to do so with less debt in the process. Uh, so thank you for that gift. Uh, now let me return you to your regularly scheduled Bible study. There is a constant tension in Scripture uh, between this idea of works and grace, uh, between the, the idea of law and freedom, uh, the notion of a loving Christ and an almighty, powerful, awesome, fearful God, uh, between the condemnation of sin and the forgiveness of sin. Uh, the text that I've chosen to discuss this morning uh, falls right in the middle of that conflict. Uh, it raises probably more questions than it answers. And it has been a point of great confusion and also great concern for Protestant Christians in particular. So I want to take us to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, uh, and we're going to begin reading at verse 12. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, if you have, have you as always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, 
children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I, being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and, re and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice in me. I want to hover a little while over the phrase, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You don't have to be in a, in a Protestant church very long, and particularly in an evangelical church, uh, to, to hear pastors in a very kind of convoluted way tell you what this verse doesn't mean. Uh, quite frankly, if we hear it, quite, what we hear is, well, Paul is not saying that we are to work for our salvation, nor is Paul saying that we are to work to keep our salvation. And then we generally say amen, sing a hymn, and go home. Rarely does anybody tell us what Paul is saying, how he's trying to get us to understand the question of working out our salvation in fear and trembling. So I want to take a little while this morning to try to unpack what that means, and I want to do it in three different ways. I want to start with, a, with an image of what it looks like to work that out, which kind of is backwards from what I normally do exegetically, but I want to start with a story. Uh, I then want to take us into the text to kind of understand the structure and the context and, and how Paul works all of that out. Yes, it's 6.30 in the morning, but we got to deal with a little grammar along the way. Uh, and then I want to come back uh, and try to, to do what our student at MCUT said and, and put shoes on the, on the Scripture and help us understand how we apply that to our lives. First, uh, the image. When I was in college, uh, I spent three different summers working as we called them student summer missionaries, uh, really were student interns, uh, in different locations. I went to Edisto Beach, South Carolina and worked in a state park. I went to Pascagoula, Mississippi and worked with international sailors in a ministry there. In my last summer, my junior year, I went to uh, Hatcher Pass, Alaska. Uh, to do camp work and ministry uh, with children in that area. My last assignment that summer was to lead a camp for boys from the, the Baptist home. Uh, the Baptist home for boys took in boys from abused and very troubled families. They took in children that had all kinds of psychological issues and problems. Uh, and for some reason, I got this wild idea that I ought to take these kids out in the middle of the woods in Alaska and take a canoe trip on the Nancy Lake canoe system. I was young, not very bright, uh, and, and thought I could do anything. And so uh, we prepared for this camp, and 
when I arrived at the camp, the boys showed up in a bus, and the lady that drove them got out and handed me a grocery bag full of pills and a book about this thick of instructions on how to administer them, said, good luck, jumped back on the bus and took off. And then I'm standing with 12 boys, third grade through 12th grade, uh, ready to take them on this trip through the woods in Alaska. Now, I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up in the woods, almost literally grew up in the woods. I uh, had sh been shooting guns since, you know, I was five years old. My father handed me a shotgun and laughed as it knocked me to the ground. You know, that's the kind of home I was raised in. Uh, I had no fear of the wilderness, or at least I thought I didn't, until the guide who was going on the trip with me uh, handed me a handgun and said, I understand you know how to shoot this, right? And I'm like, I think the boys are going to be a lot better than that. I don't think I need a handgun. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. In South Carolina, you hunt the animals. In Alaska, the animals hunt you. Uh, we have grizzly bears on the Nancy Lakes trail system, and if you see one, that little handgun isn't going to do much. Be sure to shoot it in the head and run real fast, but, but you need to be prepared. That's how this trip started. So I am preparing to take these boys on the trip, and I'm deciding who ends up in what canoe. And if you've ever done a canoe trip, you understand that, that you canoe a lake system and you get out and you do what they call portage and on the Nancy Lake trail system the lake is about a quarter mile the portage is about a mile and a half to the next lake so you're carrying a canoe over your head and you can only carry canoes really with somebody about your same height and I had to have one adult in every canoe which meant I got the third graders because I'm the shortest person in this group um, now, one of these third graders they called Spike. This is the 80s. Uh, he had a hairstyle that just stuck straight up, uh, and he had a personality that fit the description. This was one prickly little kid. Uh, he complained the entire trip. We would uh, get the canoe up over our heads, and Spike would be at the front of the canoe, I would be at the back, and he would say, the front of the canoe is heavier than the back. Okay, Spike, we'd put it down. I'd get in the back. He'd get in the front. The back of the canoe is heavier than the front. I'm like, gosh, son, just carry the pack. And he would pick up the pack, and he'd say, of course, the pack is heavier than the canoe. Three solid days of complaining. The child never stopped griping and complaining. We went through the rain and the storms and everything that came along. It was August, so it was getting cold in Alaska at that time. We finally made it back to the base camp. We're sitting around the campfire in a fire circle, and I'm sitting at one end of the log, and Spike is at the other. And as the night progressed, he moved closer and closer and closer and closer until finally he's right up against me. He takes my arm, he puts it on his, sh on his shoulder, and he says, you're warm. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I have had the opportunity over many years to kind of reflect on that story. 
And to me, it's, it's an image of our life with God. You know, God has already invited us to the party. Uh, when we come into the kingdom of God, we're in. Uh, there's no additional things that are necessary. We're, we're already seated at the end of the lock. What life is about is this constant process of moving further and further and further down the log and closer and closer and closer to God until we reach the point at the end of the day where where God's strong, powerful arm is around us and we can say, I'm warm, I'm not going anywhere. This is an image, I think, of what Paul has in mind when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's that process of how we work our way closer and closer and closer into the presence of God. Now, that's very poetic and very descriptive, but the question is, does the text really affirm that? So let me tell you why I I think it does. And because you're all dying to know the Greek this early in the morning, let me me start with with the words themselves. Uh, Paul begins uh, by talking about working out in a way that gets translated, continue to work out your salvation. And that term in the Greek, Greek has this way of saying uh, of continuous action, both past, present, and future, that English doesn't have. We can't really do that in English, Uh, with the exception of Southern English. So, you know, I can say, I'm fixing to go do something. That's continuous action. I'm about, I'm in the process, I'm doing it. My father, when he would talk to my grandfather, would frequently say, you know, Papa, you need to eat better. And my Papa would always say, uh, I've been done doing that, Joel. That's continuous action. I've been done doing it. Uh, it's ongoing. And, and that's exactly what Paul means when he says, continue to work out your faith. It's probably better translated continuously, constantly, without ceasing, work out your salvation. Every minute, every day of every hour, go through it constantly. Now, we come to that word passage, work out, and it's unfortunate that that's the way we translate it in English. It's particularly unfortunate for evangelicals because we we don't believe our faith or our salvation has anything to do with work. And so when we hear the word work, what we think of is this process of me doing good to earn some kind of merit. Uh, But it's not actually how the word should be properly translated. It's probably better understood as, as to accomplish or to complete a task. So what Paul's asking us to do is to accomplish or complete or, if you will, to live into the reality of our salvation. We are saved, therefore because of our salvation there there is this need to live up to it, if you will, 
to live into what it means to be a saved child of God. Paul is asking us to accomplish what it meant to live up to, if you will, our good name. My parents were often and frequently telling me, Joseph, when you go out today, remember who you are. Remember that your last name is Caldwell, and that if you mess up, we mess up. It's this same idea that that because we are saved into being part of the people of God, we represent God as we go out. And there's a certain amount of work and effort on our part to live up to that expectation that has nothing to do with whether we're saved or not, but how we live as a result of the fact that we already are. So he says, continuously work or strive to accomplish and complete that which God has already done in you in saving you. Uh, It's important to quickly point out that the word your there is plural. Uh, It's not singular. We tend to get wrapped up uh, in Christianity today around me, 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 me. Uh, Paul is talking about my individual salvation, my individual choices, my individual sin, when in fact Paul in Philippians is really talking to the whole church. Uh, it has individual consequences, but it's, it's meant for all of us. And it's also interesting that Paul has a different perception, and I think Scripture has a different perception of how we perceive salvation than we do. We tend to think about salvation as being saved from something. So I was saved from a life of personal sin. Um, I was saved from all of the bad things that I did, from my lust, from my gluttony, from all of those seven great sins. I was saved from that. And I, that has completed me in Christ, the end. Our perception of salvation is always past. Whereas I think Paul in Scripture perceives a salvation not as being saved from something, but being saved into something. That we are saved not just from sin, although that is true, that we are saved into community that the point of our salvation is to make us children of God and to make us part of the family of God. We call that church. That might be a little unfortunate because church doesn't always equate to community. It should and it can, but it doesn't always. God has saved us into a community of believers He saved us into a fellowship of his people. He's also also saved us into the plan and will of God. Do you realize that, that prior to your salvation, that you were you were absent any real purpose in God's plan? 
that there was no direction or meaning for your life that had any eternal significance. You may have had a, a plan for what you were going to do. You know, I'm going to graduate college in four years. I'm, I'm going to be the head of my company in ten. And, and you know, I'm going to retire rich and wealthy in, in a large house with a lot of kids and a great family gathered around me. It's not a, a bad plan, but it, it doesn't have any real eternal lasting significance. At the point you're saved, life shifts. You're saved into God's plan not just for you, but for all of creation. And you're saved into a plan that has an eternal significance beyond the here and now, beyond the right this minute, and beyond anything related specifically to your life and your future. You become part of a larger struggle, a larger battle, and a larger game plan that leads to ultimate victory. So we're saved from sin, but we're also saved into the plan and the will of God. And we're also, probably even more importantly for how we live our everyday lives, saved into the likeness and the image of Christ. At the point you become a Christian, at the point you accept your salvation in Christ, you are immediately called to this life of striving to become more and more and more Christ-like, which means you become less and less and less you-like. Uh, we struggle with this image, and it, it really is easy to say, well, you know, I'm not Jesus. Come on, Jesus was perfect. How can anybody be Jesus? That's usually a cop-out, right? It, it's usually that I don't want to even make the effort, and so I just say the bar's so high I can't, so I just quit. Uh, the reality is that Scripture holds us to a very high standard. And the high standard is that my life should more and more, as I move down that log closer and closer to God, look like the life of Christ and be lived out in that way. So, when you put all that together, what Paul seems to be saying is that we are to continuously constantly, without ceasing, work to accomplish that thing that Christ has given us in salvation, the ultimate goal of our salvation. We are to work to live in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they look like us, sound like us, act like us, run in the same social circles, it doesn't matter. We are called to live in that community. We we are called to accomplish and work out what it means to live within the plan and the will of God. We're called to work out and figure out what it means to live into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that whole process is what takes us further and further down that log, closer and closer to the warmth and the comfort and the reality of our relationship with God. Now, I wish he had stopped there uh, because I, 
I get a little kind of miffed about uh, the fear and trembling part. Uh, you know, I'm just not a fear and trembling kind of guy for the most part. Uh, and, you know, I grew up in Baptist churches where Jesus is your buddy, right? You know, Jesus, Jesus is the guy who loves you. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, this idea of approaching God in Christ with fear and trembling seems a little alien. At least till I pause a minute and think about my relationship with my earthly father. Uh, I love my dad. He is a, a great, great guy. I uh, didn't uh, go back to church, well, didn't go to church, period, until he was 70 years old. He'll be 80 in July. Uh, believed for many years that, you know, he wasn't quite good enough yet, uh, in spite of the fact that his son's been a minister for all of my life, adult life, and I've constantly said to him, it's not about how you are. It's about what you're willing to give to Jesus. Uh, he just wasn't buying that up until really late in life. But at his core, he was a very, very good man. Uh, my dad was a factory worker, worked in factories all his life, the hardest working person I think I've ever met. He loved his family without a fault, and he drilled into our heads that if your family needs anything, you find a way to provide it. And I do not doubt to this day that if I called, my father would come running. Uh, he drilled into our heads that, that work was important and that any work was important that it doesn't, didn't matter whether you were the owner of the company or you were the guy sweeping the floor, you deserved respect for the work that you did. He created in us a, a work ethic that said we need, to, we need to see work as part of our calling in life. And and on top of that, he constantly said to me, and I asked him one time, Daddy, why do you work so hard? He worked third shift. He'd work on the weekends. He, he would do all kinds of things. The man was constantly working. Why do you work so hard? And he said to me, I'm working hard so you don't have to work as hard. To which he quickly adds, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be working. It just means I want to make sure you have the opportunity to work at things that don't that use your mind, that don't require you to use your hands quite as much. He was that kind of man. And I loved him and love him deeply. But there's a part of me that feared my father, that, that looked at him, because I knew that he could take me in a minute. That if I got out of line, he could put me back in line uh, with one look, or one swat of the hand. It's all it took. Uh, I knew that though my father loved me and cared for me, that he cared enough to also discipline me. My father was never abusive. He never did anything that, that I, would, I would call angry or hostile. It just wasn't who he was. But I knew he had the power and the capacity should he choose to do so. And that kept me in line. It 
every time I approach my father, there is this mixture of love and fear that comes out of respect for the man that he was. I think this is what Paul's talking about. When he says that we work out our salvation before God with fear and trembling, what he means is that that God, though we know he loves us, though we know he cares for us, though we know he sacrificed everything for us, that that God is also a God of infinite power who could, if he willed, simply annihilate me without even a thought, who has the the total control of the universe in his hands and has the ability to do anything that he chooses to do. Now, the, the theological point there is this. Though God has the power... God chooses to self-restrain the power that he exercises. God doesn't have to put up with our mess. God doesn't have to deal with my failures and my problems. He doesn't have to deal with my whining and complaining. God, God could just wipe the slate clean and forget it ever happened. And there'd be nothing we could do about it. God chooses out of his mercy and his justice and his love to restrain the power he has. Now, what does that say to us? What it says is that as I approach God with this sense of awe and respect and even fear and trembling, I come before a God who shows me who I'm not, who puts me in my place. You know, it's easy in human terms to sit down and size ourselves up as better than the guy next to us, right? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I make more money. I've done more things. I'm going places he's not. My wife looks better, my car's nicer, and gosh, have you seen his house? You know, it's really easy to kind of compare ourselves to others around us and think, you know, I'm okay. I'm doing everything I need to do in life. But when we turn around and make the comparison between us and God, there's no comparison, right? There's no comparison between any power or privilege or things that I have in this world and the power that God possesses. And so approaching God with fear and trembling becomes a way of self-reflecting on the fact that maybe I need to treat life with a little more humility, which we're going to discover is kind of the the end of this whole story for Paul and Philippians, that I need to readjust myself not to comparing myself to my brother or sister, but to comparing myself to God and understanding, you know, we're all equally unimpressive in the eyes of God. 
but we're all equally valuable in his eyes as well. It reorients who we are and how we deal with relationships and how we deal with power in our lives. The other side of this whole fear and trembling thing is that we need to understand that, that God expects us to use rightly those things that he's given us in our lives. If, if you're in a position over anyone else, you have power. If you're in a place where society views you uh, as the majority, you have power. If you're in a place where, where you have enough wealth that, that you can live a comfortable life, compared to the vast majority of the world, you have power and privilege. That power and privilege has to be utilized in a way that mirrors God's use of power and privilege. What does God do? God takes all of his power. God takes all of his privilege. And God incarnates himself as a man in Jesus Christ comes to earth, is beaten and abused, is treated like a servant, is spat on, is looked down upon, is nailed to a cross, and dies for all of us. This is the most powerful being in the universe. Jesus had access to all of the power of God. And this text, this passage, begins with a therefore. And it's cliche now. You've all heard it. You know, anytime you see a therefore, you ought to ask what it's there for. Uh, the therefore points you back, and it points you back to what's called the Christ hymn in Philippians. And the Christ hymn says that Jesus, though equal as God, still humbled himself and became a man on our behalf. Now, what does that say to us? If the most powerful being in the universe hinders his power for our sake, and we are called to work out our salvation in relationship to how we become like Christ, then isn't it true that God is asking us to take any power, any resource, any possession, any ability we have and use that not for our good and our benefit, but for the good of those around us. There is this almost requirement in Scripture uh, that we die to self and that we elevate both God and others in the course of doing it. Fear and trembling points us both to a God who humbles us and to a Jesus who choose, chose to humble himself and says to us that we are to be humble before God and we are to humble ourselves in, in giving away all that we can of ourselves to those that God places in our path 
along the way. So you have an image. You, you have all of how the Scripture works itself out. Let me bring it home a minute. Let me, uh, let me take the words off the page and try to put shoes on them, if you will. I think that Paul's call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling requires first the abandonment of power and privilege to the will of God. You need to to leave here and do an inventory to sit down and think through everything that God has provided you in your life in one column and then go back and ask yourself how you are using that for the glory and the will and the plan and the purpose of God in the other. And if you come up blank, you should spend some time praying, God, what do I do in these blank areas? How do I then take my wealth and use it to your glory? How do I take my job and use it to your glory? And, and I'm not talking here about everybody here going out and, and accepting a call to the ministry tomorrow. You know, that, that's not what it's all about. God uses people in any vocation for his will and his glory and honor. I'm talking about taking where God has put you and deciding how you use that to bring about his kingdom and his glory. Two, I think we need to look at how we totally reorient our lives toward that which serves God and those who God loves. Most of us think that, that living a Christian life means I try to be a good person, I show up to church, I, I participate at church in some function, and I do something for God. Maybe I go on a mission trip every now and then, or you know, I give to the church to support somebody to go on a mission trip, or I give to a ministry. None of that is bad in and of itself. But the Bible isn't interested in kind of partial, segmented efforts. Uh, God isn't interested in you saying, okay, I give this many hours to the church, and the rest of it I give to the rest of my life. You know, this goes to to family, this goes to work, this goes to building my career, this goes to the plans that I have for myself. God says, no, no, no. At the point you are saved, you have to work out how all of that then belongs back to God. How do I completely turn around my life in a way that reorients my thinking to say that every minute of every hour, of every day belongs to God. What does Jesus say in Matthew? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. By which the focus there is just the all. You know, we get wrapped up in, I need to give my intelligence, my strength, my heart. Matthew's just saying, give everything you have to God. Reorient everything you have to the call and plan of God. And I will tell you, most of us don't do that. Or if we do it, we don't do it well. And it's central to the story of the gospel, and it's central to what Paul means by working out your salvation. And three, 
we need to accept and understand that we are saved from a life of isolation and selfishness into a life of community and selflessness. That before you came to God, it was all about you. After you come to God, it's all about God. Uh, And the second half of that verse in Matthew 22, you must love your neighbor as yourself. I could say in relationship to most of the world, all of us in this room, for the most part, are privileged. We, we have things that most people would only dream about. And most of what we use those things on are not the care of others, but the care of ourselves. The vast majority of our wealth, and, and I, I'm pointing at myself here, the vast majority of the things we own, the vast majority of the things we have, the vast majority of the power that we exercise is given to not God or his ministry, given to not those in need who are suffering, but given to to me. And, And that's not meant, well, maybe it is meant to be a guilt trip, you know. Sometimes the Bible guilts us into the right thing. But what it's meant to be is, is an admonition that the Bible says that when our lives become focused on me, we are out of the will of God. And when we are out of the will of God, we lack the ability to live the wonderful, joyous, exciting life that God has called us to live. All of us need to think about a reorientation of those things that we have towards all that God calls us to do, not for ourselves, but for others. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, by by which he means, you know, you're already on the log, live like it. And if you're there living it, Why not live it more and more and more each day? Why not be more radically committed day by day to what it means to live a life devoid of self and focused on God and His plan? Why not spend day by day asking yourself, how do I get further and further and further and further down that log till one day I can take the arm of God and metaphorically place it on my shoulders and say, you're warm. I'm not going anywhere. That's what I think it means to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. May God bless your journey as you attempt to do so. May God bless the teaching of his word. Thank you.